Greetings, all. What is the good word? Thank you for stopping the scroll and spending some of your valuable time with us. This is the Coptimizer podcast, and I'm your host, Patrick Flannelly, retired chief of police and all-around wannabe renaissance man. Here, we look to spend some time with leaders and pioneers that have a passion for public safety and those who look to build strong and resilient individuals and organizational cultures, both of which result in stronger communities. We look across industries with a focus on peak performance. Our biggest questions, what can I do to squeeze every little drop of life out of each day? How do I get a little bit better today than I was yesterday? And how can I tap into the energy that makes it all possible? While our focus is on first responders and those in public service, the lessons shared here on the Coptimizer podcast are universal. Our goal is to hire healthy, retire healthy, and maximize impact in our personal and professional lives in that time in between. To drive value and squeeze every drop out of our performance so we can be awesome for our families, our departments, and our communities. Better performing officers make for better performing organizations. This is not a complicated truth. It is the simple truth. From the top cop to the street cop and all those working in support of high performing organizations, this show is for you. It's time to Coptimize. Greetings, all. Welcome back to the Coptimizer podcast. Got another awesome guest today, Susanna Hasney, retired FBI supervisory special agent. And uh, we're going to talk about mindfulness today. And Susanna and I, I was fortunate to meet her out in Las Vegas at the TaserCon conference where she was presenting on mindfulness. And uh, welcome to the show, Susanna. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. I'm glad this worked out. So um, I think by the time this episode airs, people may have heard the uh, the short that we did on site in Las Vegas at the MGM, which was pretty cool. There was a there was it was a high energy environment. It was it was neat to see all the all the different types of I, I think these some of these uh, cutting edge modern training ideas and philosophies all in one place. Hopefully, we'll see more of that in the future. I I agree. I think it was pretty incredible that you have this uh, company Taser that decided to make an entire their entire first conference, really, right, on all about officer health and wellness and well being and performance. It's it's pretty amazing. So I was uh, I was honored to be there. Yeah. So I think this is going to be a fun conversation today because. At, like one of the things that we touched on there and that what I want to touch on today is you in speaking of taser and speaking of equipment, you can have all the best technology. You can have all of the best training. You can have all the best equipment, but if this space in between the ears is not in a good place, or if it is not optimized, then we are spinning our wheels we're and we could be potentially wasting a lot of time and effort and so i i'm really looking forward to digging into a little bit this, with you today about why 
this is so important. So the, the class that you that you taught there is called Mindfulness for Performance and Well-Being. And since we're on the Coptimizer podcast and optimization and peak performance is really what our discussions are are evolving around. How about we just kind of jump in with uh, your background and how you, you know, how how does a special agent from the FBI wind up uh, teaching about mindfulness? Well, that's a long story, which I'm happy to talk about because I frankly did not even remotely think I'd be doing this in my retirement time after the bureau. I was an agent for a little over 20 years. And in 1997, when I first got in the FBI, when I was at the Academy, I'm mean, not in a million years would I have thought that I would be a mindfulness and yoga coach for our hostage rescue team. And to be able to take this training out on the road with some of our FBI SWAT teams, a lot of our FBI SWAT teams, and also with the state and local law enforcement as well, as well as leadership teams, evidence response teams, not, not ever did that ever cross my mind. But when I look back at it, you know, I had a, my background about a hundred years before I was an agent, <laughs> I was a professionally trained dancer and my ballet was my base. And I did a little bit of professional dance here and there. I was never, uh, frankly, I was never good enough to be like a full-time member of the New York city ballet, not even close or anything like that. But I, you know, I held my own, did, did what I could do. And um, and then I so, ended up- So you were going to get hired as like the, uh, you were going to be like one of these uh, special agents that like the black swan where they recruit you in and you use your dance skills to do uh, all of the uh, the secret squirrel agent stuff, right? Like you could have uh, been like no. a, <laughs> no, not like a, like a, a secret assassin like I read about in some of my uh, novels. No, um, no. That's badass, though. Sorry, sorry to just kind of burst your <laughs> bubble, but yeah, it wasn't all that glamorous. No, it really wasn't. But, you know, I ended up going to get my undergraduate degree in dance from the University of Akron in Ohio and every parent's dream. Right. You know, I was a I was a dance major. You know, can't you be just be an engineer, or, you know, <laughs> like my brother or be a lawyer? Uh -huh. No, nope, mom, I want to go be a I want to go get a dance degree. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And they my parents, mostly my mom literally said to me when I was, you know, 18-ish, she said, she said, go ahead and get your degree. We'll pay for it and, and be a dancer for as long as you want to be. She said, but please go get your master's in something practical. That's what she said to me, right? <laughs> and just like every good parent. And at the time I was like, eh, whatever. I just, you know, I just want to do my thing as a dancer, just like an athlete or whatever. You just want to do your thing, right? And then eventually, of course, mom was right, you know, and I did to be true to my word to her. That was my promise to her. I would do it. I went and got my master's degree in business, right? You know, why not business from the university of Wisconsin, Madison. And ironically, there's a connection there between um, now the work I do now and my, uh, one of my colleagues, Chad McGee, who I'll talk about in a little bit, um, who is a director of meditation for Wisconsin athletics. It's just a small world. You never know what's going to happen. So I ended up doing that. Um, in Wisconsin. And then from Wisconsin, I moved to Cleveland and down the road, I became the, after I stopped dancing, et cetera, and a couple of other jobs in between, I became the, uh, back in the day, it was corporate wellness. I'm not even sure they even use that term anymore, but the director of uh, wellness for BP America, the oil company. And they used to be headquartered out of Cleveland. Now they're in Chicago, but that was my job. I actually loved it. And the yeah. thing about it is 
probably within the last few months, I reflected on that job and I thought, oh my God, what I'm doing now started way back then when I was in my 20s as the director of wellness programs there. There was no talk of mindfulness, even though obviously mindfulness had been around for thousands and thousands of years. That was not part of the Western conversation, at least not much, certainly not in Cleveland, you know, in the early 90s. And so that wasn't even part of the vernacular then. But the, the whole idea of performance and well-being was already ingrained in me, starting at a young age of being a dancer and being very physical and going through the rejection and being knocked down and being hungry all the time, hungry for work, hungry physically for food, you know, <laughs> things like that. And, uh, and it, it just, it, it, it helped build my resilience at that young age. And I really didn't realize that, you know, when I first got in the bureau, um, there's a whole other story there between director of corporate wellness, dancer into the bureau, but eventually I made it into the bureau. But when I first got in the bureau, I remember being embarrassed telling people on the first day at the FBI Academy, when you stand up and you say, hey, I was a law enforcement officer, I was um, I was in the military, I was a teacher, and all these wonderful things. And here's Suzanne standing up. Well, I was a dancer, <laughs> one of those. And I thought, oh, my God, I was thinking, what uh, am I doing here? Well, I, th I think maybe, yeah, I think maybe you're selling yourself a little short here because anyone that's been to the ballet knows that it's, it's not just dancing, right? That's, that is about as pure of an athlete as you're ever going to see as someone on a ballet stage. And the amount of discipline and effort that takes to dance at that level is, you know, that, that is, it's, it's, it's really being a professional athlete. So and yeah, it's, it's it makes perfect with me. sense. Thanks, Patrick. And it's it stayed with me that discipline never leaves you. It never leaves you. And whether you're in sports or whatever particular skill set that you have that you really focus on and that you have a passion for, that stuff never leaves you no matter what age. And I do believe I didn't appreciate it back then what that particular area of training did for my life. And like you said, I mean, I, I've taken knocks, emotional, mental and physical and it really helped me a lot to um, get back up again. It really did. And that, that definitely came from, from my dance training and being in a world that's really difficult uh, in all those areas of physicality and emotional and being told you're not good enough and all that stuff. So, and, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting now to think about this in retrospect, but working as a, as a wellness um, you know, in that wellness space back in the nineties for BP, it just goes to show you sometimes like, how far behind the law enforcement segment, you know, sector is from the from the private sector in terms of performance optimization, because you when you look at uh, at you know these huge companies like like BP, right, a global company, and they recognize that listen, this is we have to invest in our employees if if we're if we're going to optimize you know, in them, it's, it's, you know, for that, for a company like that, it's right. You're optimizing profits for your shareholders and you're building a company. Um, and I'm sure, and I know that's not the only motivation, but that's, uh, but at, at its base, that's what it is. And in, in policing, you know, the, the word mindfulness, which we'll get to, um, or wellness, even, even in the early two thousands, um, when I started talking about some of this stuff, uh, back in my own agency, it was it was a foreign concept to to a lot of people, and it was kind of like, ah, you know, that's uh, that that's all great and stuff, but 
you know, that's, that's, let's, let's make sure we focus on the real work <laughs> and, and everyone always kind of separate those things. hundred percent, hundred percent, I hundred percent agree. And you're right about that. And, and if, if I can be totally candid, we're still behind, we're still behind and we're, we're playing a lot of catch up and it's unfortunate, but at least we're having a conversation and, and look at what we just came back from TaserCon and some of the wonderful work that they do in this arena and that with their coaching and all these concepts that they're bringing in. Um, and I, I really appreciate that, but we need to keep this going. And I do believe, and maybe we'll get into this, but I do believe it's a, it's a leadership issue. It's a hundred percent leadership issue. And if you believe you need to, quote unquote, take care of your people, you need to take care of your people for real and not just check the box and not give it lip service and really have the courage to lean in a little bit and take a little bit of risk with maybe areas that are uncomfortable because you're not as knowledgeable about it. And mindfulness is one arena um, that has been a long time coming and um, it's, it's time, it's time. So Let's um, let's go back because you said there's a funny story about how you uh, wound up in the bureau. So let's uh, oh well, let, let's, let's hear that story. When I was around ten years old, I talked to my mom about being an FBI agent. Now, if you ask me, was that from watching something on TV? Maybe I can tell you I don't know why, but I wanted to be in the FBI. As from that early, early age, my mom's like, oh, that's really nice, Susie. That's really cute. But ha ha ha, you know, just kind of went like this right <laughs> over red and like, whatever, honey. And so, um, so fast forward to when I moved to Cleveland, I was working for BP. I couldn't dance anymore because I was done, right? I was done dancing. And so I found my other love, which was running. And when I was a dancer, I wasn't quote unquote allowed to run because I was told it changes your musculature and all this kind of stuff that I don't believe in anymore. But that's what we were told back in those early days of uh, dance training. And so I didn't run. I didn't play any other sport, even though I loved it. Like I loved gym class when I was a kid and things like that. So I could finally, I'm going to run now, right? I'm going to start doing different, you know, I'm going to get on my bike. I'm going to row. I'm going to do whatever I like to do. So I started running. So I joined a running club in Cleveland. And I also, uh, within this club, um, I met a, a bunch of FBI agents, right? So it's just ironic that it was with a bunch of FBI agents. And then I, I raced, I did a five mile race. It was, I remember distinctly, it was in Bay Village, Ohio, right? Right outside of Cleveland. And I did this five mile race. There was a bunch of agents lived in Bay Village and a bunch of us ran. And um, at the end of the race, you know, a lot of times you go to somebody's house for a beer, lunch or whatever. And so one of the agents had a little after party. So we went there, we had a couple of beers, everybody's sweaty and tired and things like that. And so one of the agents, he says, Susanna, you know, did you ever think about being an FBI agent? I went, oh, my God. So I told him the story about <laughs> being a little kid and, and wanting to do it. He said, well, why don't you do it? Why don't you do it? And that's where it started. So it's so incredible how life works you know, that sometimes you're, you're planning for things doesn't mean anything. Sometimes you need to plan. Sometimes you just got to let life play out. And even though that was always in the back of my mind, I had put it in, on the back burner, not because I hadn't thought about it, but because I was really happy with where I was. I was really satisfied with what I was doing. I was, lo I loved what I was doing for BP. Right. So, but once that once he said that to me, guess what? The light bulb went off and went, well, why not? You know, so that that's yeah. where my story comes from. It's, it's sort of serendipity, I guess. You know, just never know. Right. 
So yeah, that's cool. You you never do know, and as it turns out, you know that's you know it's a path that you were maybe you were on it the whole time and didn't know it, but either way, you uh, you've come to take all those those wellness skills and your and your dance background, and you'll bring that forward into your, into your career as an FBI agent, and then take that really to a whole new level working with, uh, with the groups that you did and, and special operations and, and with, uh, with, with others. And that, what we were talking at, at TaserCon, you John, John Dunn is one of the, one of the guests that we've had on the show and, um, He's a fellow boilermaker, you know, not a badger. He's a boilermaker, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, yeah, he, he was, he was telling me how much, you know, he enjoyed that and, and how important that was. And there's someone that's coming from air force special operations to working at the highest level and, uh, tactical operations at, at, in law enforcement. So I've, I was excited to talk about that, and I'm kind of uh, sure at some point here in the next hour we'll we'll get back to that again and, and talk about why that's important. But pretty cool, yes. pretty cool. Yes, absolutely. Well, it, if you think about it, you know, mindfulness and, and yoga, the, the movement practice related to mindfulness practices is, is yoga is a big one, right? And it, that stuff's built for operators. It's built for men like John Don. It's built for those guys, and so. When I first started teaching, and we started with yoga, and we, maybe we can get into this later as, uh, again, but when I first started teaching yoga after I um, retired for the hostage rescue team, we started with yoga. Uh, very often, police departments do the opposite, and they, they start with meditation, which I think is a really good idea because we don't have the shift work and the coming and goings a lot. We have a, a set full-time team, so it was really um really appropriate to just start with yoga and plus and their physical beings right they're very physically strong powerful very mobile they they don't give up all that kind of good stuff that you need to be the warriors that they are so the yoga practice is a warrior practice it's a warrior yes. practice. and so it made perfect sense to just get past past some of the western myths and the stuff about you know thin women and lululemons doing all the lululemon pants and all this stuff doing yoga which is totally fine but that was never the intent intention of yoga so it, it didn't surprise me that um people like john gravitated towards it and then and they noticed the benefits and then eventually the whole mindfulness piece and the, the whole the meditative and the breath the, the breathing and the the focusing on the body and moving out of the thinking mind and into the body all of a sudden they start to realize that they're sleeping better they're less less emotional reactivity they, they're they're more present for what's in front of them so all that stuff starts to come together with this so um i wasn't surprised that it that it was accepted by the vast majority um but i i was pleasantly surprised that um i was allowed to do it i was invited to do it it was it, it was it, it it was an honor and it is an honor it's an absolute pleasure to go there yeah and you know i i came uh from uh you know on the law enforcement side you know early in my early in my career i was part of our swat team i did that for a long time and yeah i was always into physical fitness uh from early you know early point in my career but you know it, it started out more on the traditional side where you know, i would lift you know five six days a week you know 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday, chest and tries, back and buys, Wednesday legs. And then I would run separate from that. And um, I, I discovered CrossFit later in life, not until my late 30s, still pretty early. I was a very early adopter of CrossFit. But when you, you know, when you start CrossFitting after you've do, been doing a typical gym movement, what you find is that your mobility is at least for me, like it was terrible. Like I, you know, as a kid, I remember being very flexible, but as an adult, you know, you go a long time and you don't stretch, you don't do anything. I I just couldn't, I couldn't get myself into like just a simple overhead squat, ho- holding a bar overhead and trying to squat. Like it's, I think it's still one of the reasons why I, I, I love CrossFit for a lot of reasons, but that was one of the reasons I really thought like, wow, this is, you know, this is a full body uh, exercise program and my shoulder yeah. mobility, terrible. My f- hip flexors, tight, legs tight. And I just realized I'm like, man, I, I carry around this gun belt all day. I'm climbing in and out of the left side of my car, you know, a lot, you know, left knee pressure, lower back pain. Uh, and then it was, you know, CrossFit just completely exposed me. And uh, so my... <laughs> My my first exposure then to yoga was uh, Mark Devine, who was a, a retired SEAL commander who started a, a U.S. CrossFit based out of California. But he had this, um, he was really the one that really kind of introduced these concepts of mindfulness and tactical mindfulness, box breathing. Uh, and I'm sure, I don't know whether he was the originator of a lot of these things, but I know I give him a lot of credit to creating a lot of exposure to that. So, yeah, yeah, I, I eventually did become a believer um, in thought, <laughs> but in practice, you know, here's here's what I tell you. Know, you want to know why a lot of people, more people don't do yoga? Because hmm. it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It looks easy, but it's freaking hard and it is very uncomfortable. And it's like anything else in life, you know, that, you know, some of the greatest benefits in life are always right on the other side of fear and pain and, uh, and agony. Well, it's all that, you know, that vulnerability piece, right? Emotional risk, emotional exposure, right? Of your, frankly, your shortcomings, your weaknesses. I even like to use weaknesses. That's not not really the right word, but places that get uncomfortable are the places to focus on, you know, and the the yoga piece is a safe space to do that. And there's so many lessons you can take from that, from your yoga practice, just moving into that discomfort and working with distress in a, in a safe way uh, is just, it's just um, pretty incredible for your performance because you, you work with discomfort and you work with it and go into spaces where you're vulnerable and you, you you might feel like you're not doing something right. And you start, you notice the judgment that comes up because you feel like you look stupid or whatever, whatever it is. That's all part of the practice of yoga. That's all a piece of it. So um, in your career, so you, you become an agent and I'm sure you're doing like things that, uh, that, you know, street agents are doing, right. You're working cases and, and doing the job and then, how does that, how, you know, how do you wind up um, taking your your previous life skills and then applying them to uh, not only the HRT and what they're doing, but uh, just bringing it to uh, the FBI uh, in a in more broad sense? How does it work? Yeah, well, 
as we were just talking about, you and I are both physical people for our whole lives, right? And right around, fast forward 10 years into my career, right around 2007, I'll tell you this brief story because it segues directly into what I do now. 2007, I was a street agent in Cleveland. So um, I was about midway through my career. I was married to a wonderful man who happens to be one of my best friends in the world to this day. And um, things weren't going so hot, you know, things were things were not working very well. And I also was working some cases that I, I just, I just didn't feel like I had a purpose. I just didn't feel like I had a real purpose professionally or personally. So my professional life and my personal life were colliding at the same time. And that's a pretty awful place to be. And I began sort of numbing it with some maladaptive coping behaviors, like uh, disengaging from my relationships whether it was with my husband or with even with some of my girlfriends, just sort of disengaging, pulling away from all those good things in life, not seeing the joy, seeing, seeing just all the, the negative things in life, right? Doing the, what your brain does, right? When you're full of stress and trauma. Um, we went through one traumatic episode uh, between the two of us that um, was very difficult to navigate. And that was the year prior to that in 2006. And so I was still, I hadn't addressed trauma that was still inside me because, you know, I'm Suzanne, I'm fine. I'll, I'll get past all this stuff. I can make this work out. And so when I get divorced, I'll just start over again and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so my personal life and professional life were just going completely off the rails. So it was completely derailed. And so the maladaptive behaviors of not, of not being engaged in life, not being present for what's happening to me so I could actually do something for myself, drinking too much, all that kind of stuff that was exercising too much. All of a sudden, the thing I love the most was becoming maladaptive because I figured if I ran five miles and I feel better, what if I run eight? Maybe I'll feel better. What if I lift a half an hour longer? So I would be, I would injure myself, things like that, because I wanted to feel better so bad. I wasn't liking where I was. So fast forward from that, um, my husband and I separated. I moved to the DC area. I moved to Quantico and I got a job a uh, wonderful job, the best assignment I had as a FBI National Academy instructor. So I know you had Corey Magookan on here as one of your interviewees, and he was one of my colleagues back in the day. And so I worked for, as a National Academy instructor, loved every minute of it. And I started to find out that I wasn't alone and in talking to cops and struggling with unprocessed stress and trauma because, because you know, the stress and trauma is not the demon. Stress and trauma is part of life. And you might want to double that, you know, I'm making that up, but I kind of double that in law enforcement arenas, right? I mean, we're overly exposed to bad things, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and Absolutely. so are, yeah, constantly. And, but there's so much joy out there. There's so much good, but our brain, we you know we're built, we all have a negativity bias. So we're kind of built to see that. And then when you're full of this unprocessed stress and trauma that we know we have, um, we don't address it because it's not culturally really accepted to do that, you go down this path of numbing, right? But I started to notice that that um, that I wasn't alone. And for the longest time, I thought, what am I doing? I have this great job. I had this great husband. What, what the hell did I do to my life kind of thing? And so once I got to National Academy and started to discover this, I had to do my own work. And um, the, phys the physical fitness piece was great. And I kept doing that because that's super important, as we know, but it wasn't enough anymore. It wasn't quite doing the trick anymore. And um, everything around me was suffering emotionally and mentally uh, and spiritually too. I, I, I was suffering and I thought, I just don't want to feel this way anymore. I, I, just, I, I just didn't want to be this way. 
anymore. So I started to look into what, what can I do? So this wonderful mindfulness piece came up, right? Um, and I started, and I started my mindfulness journey with yoga because of the physicality of it. I started, started seriously practicing yoga. I had dabbled in it for years as a dancer and then, but it never quite took. I always say to my students that yoga comes to you. You don't always go to it. It comes, it find, it'll find you somewhere when you most need it. But I really started seriously practicing yoga not terribly long ago, like in 2013. So about a decade ago. And then I started reading up on meditation and I thought, huh. And that's obviously incorporating all the breath work that we were doing uh, and the breath awareness we were practicing in yoga. And then I met this uh, outstanding pioneer. His name is Rich Gerling out of Hillsborough, Oregon. And he is the, he's the founder of Mindful Badge. He is truly the pioneer in mindfulness and law enforcement and public safety and I basically almost stalked him. I saw him, I saw him <laughs> on the cover of, not really, in a good way. Um, I saw his photo on the cover of Mindful Magazine. I don't know if you read that, Patrick, but he was on the cover of Mindful Magazine as um, introducing mindfulness to his department and to other departments in Oregon. And so I just, I cold called him. I called the department and they, you know, they passed me through to his voicemail to Lieutenant Gerling and he called me back. I, I think it was the same day he called me back. And we, you know, we had this conversation. We nerded out for like an hour, had this great conversation about how he got into meditation. And so I eventually um, invited him to the National Academy. And that was around 2015. I, I invited him and he came and he did um, a few blocks with some of my students. And I think it was a total of about 45-ish law enforcement officers. And it it was very well received. It was like kind of weirdo back then. Right. And even yeah. though that doesn't sound that long ago, 2015 was decades ago for mindfulness and law enforcement, as you know, very well, it was kind of weird. Right. right? And, and I'll be totally candid about it is that I, I did get quite a bit of that kind of pushback from some of the bosses going, you know, what is this weirdo agent doing? And why are we doing this? Why are we teaching meditation? Why are we doing yoga? And some of my coworkers too. And, and it, again, this was just um, the, the whole newness of it and, and just understanding. I wasn't doing very well at understanding where they were coming from because there was a, an aspect of what are you doing and why are you doing these strange things and how does this work? How does this relate to law enforcement? And I, and I realized it was my, I realized a little too late, but I realized that it was my responsibility to understand where they were coming from and for them to open up to understand me. So it's kind of a two-way little bit of a standoff on that. But when you get passionate about it, because we we run into this all the time, right? And I was just as guilty of that as a young officer. When you when you're passionate about something, you're like, everybody should be doing this. Yeah. And then and then you you know you charge forward and people are looking at you like, what the hell is finally talking about? Um and then and then you, you, when you have an opportunity, you, you know, things kind of settle down or you learn to see things from someone else's perspective. You're like, oh, OK, I get it. Then there's there's more than one idea. There's more than one uh, uh, perspective, I guess. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you have uh, to kind of put your put your ego in check. You really do. And you go, you know what? Maybe. Susanna, Patrick, you sit down, you understand, you look at it, like you said, from their perspective, and you go from a place of understanding so you can 
educate them in this area that you're so excited about. So why should they be excited about it just because you are? So I had to get asked that myself because, I, and I think I'm going to mention this in Vegas in our in our in our conversation there that I, I'm pretty sure that there were a few times that some of the executive management and the FBI wanted to kick me out of their office. <laughs> Not they never did, but I you know when you get that feeling like ooh. I think I might've said the wrong thing that that was me or said the wrong, the right thing in the wrong way, I think is what happened. So that was a rookie mistake. And, and I learned, you know, and I'm, I'm, I was never, um, I don't feel bad about the fact about being assertive about it. Cause it's really, really important work to do, but um, you know, I had learned, I had to go about the right way. But the, the point was, is that the students, the cops themselves in written feedback said, what is this and how, why aren't we doing this more? This is a, this is a new place to go. Let's explore this. Basically, let's explore this a little bit more. That was the shining light for me um, to move forward with it. And, and, and before even I got to that place where I was teaching this work to cops, you know, I, I, I going back to doing my own work. So I had to build my own practice and dabble in meditation and find what works for me. And you know, I've been asked so many times by police officers and by fellow agents, like what, you know, how do I, what's the right kind of practice to do? Well, you know, the right kind of practice is the practice that you do, whatever you find that works for you. So I had to do my own work before I could go in and actually um, translate it for my students and actually translate it for upper management in the FBI, because, you know, I, I needed their support. Obviously I needed their support between, you know, not just their emotional support, but I needed the resources to, to move ahead and do this work. So um, after I worked for the National Academy and um, I moved back to the critical incident response group where, where I had been there about 10 years earlier. So I was in the crisis management unit, probably 10, maybe 10 years ish into my career. And then I came back at the end of my career. That's where I retired out of. And um, I, I had a wonderful unit chief at the time. And he said, why don't you start talking about this work with our special agents in charge? And so I was given a block of training, unheard of, right? And talking about mindfulness yeah, yeah. and performance and how this works. And I, I all of a sudden I got a lot of interest from the SACs. And so when I was ready to retire, you know, I, I was ready to move on and I had no intention of coming back to the bureau really. Um, but my unit chief said, not because I was upset with him, it's because I was ready to move on and do this kind of work in mindfulness. This is what I wanted to do. I found really what I wanted to do. I was such a big believer in it. And he said, he said, why don't you come back and do some of that work here? You know, part of it, why don't you keep, keep moving forward and doing it? And I went, great. So I came back and then kind of almost simultaneously, there's a human performance coordinator who is one of the most awesome human beings I've ever met. Um, and he's at, on the hostage rescue team. And he kind of heard about what I was doing and I heard about what he was doing. He was setting up a very forward leaning, he had, had set up a very forward leaning human performance program work. He's former special forces himself working with them, in, instituting what they were doing into the hostage rescue team and making it um, specific for, for um, these elite operators. And he said that the one piece that he wanted to focus on was the mental aspects that were not using technology, right? The organic mental fitness, like what can we do? One was meditation, one was yoga. And a little bit more of the, talking a little bit more about the spiritual side of it, but it was really more, how can we infuse this into the training at HRT? So that was ironic at the same time, 
that crisis management unit hired me back and I was allowed to, you know, and, and, and from our executive management at, at Critical Incident Response Group, our assistant director then had asked me, can you keep, I told me, keep doing this, keep doing this. Something is working. He was very forward leaning. He said, something is working. Something's going on that we need to explore. So I'm so grateful for leaders like that who, who really just go forward and go, go do it, Susanna. I don't know what you're doing, but something's working. So going to HRT, I started um, yoga training, you know, yoga classes a couple times a week and it started to pick up steam. And that's pretty much how that happened. And all of a sudden now I'm, I'm pretty much a fixture over there. Then it blossomed into um, training SWAT teams and um, between myself and a, a colleague of mine named Tim Harrison, another colleague, Rick Kraus. I'm, I'm saying these names on purpose because they deserve it. And um, another colleague of mine, Kevin Kelly, who is a, was a senior team leader for SWAT out in San Francisco. Um, Richard Gerling out in Oregon, like I mentioned, going back to Chad McGeehee at the University of Wisconsin-Madison from Interedge Med Meditation, we kind of converged and created a team called PEAK. And this PEAK training was based out of SURG, and this is when we started to train our SWAT teams. And our courses ended up being two days of literally meditation, yoga, and talking about how to be a healthier, richer and I mean, rich in um, richness of spirit and kind, compassionate human being. How, do, how does this training make you not just a better operator, a better agent? How does this training make you a better human, better at relationships, better spouse, better father, better mother, better sibling? And so that's how that all happened. And it just sort of blossomed and the SWAT teams really took to it which like, like I uh, mentioned earlier, I'm not hugely surprised because it's built for them, it's built for them. So it's really important, the team of people that we had together who had done this work before and over researchers or specialists in it, it was really important to have the right group of people who had a passion for this stuff and build this grassroots um, training program. So I'm, I'm actually really proud of it. Uh, as you should be. And it, you know, everything, some you know in I, I think in life is like this you things that you resist at times you don't really understand why you're resisting it maybe it's fear maybe it's um you know something else maybe there's financial barriers or time barriers or whatever but when you get there and then you look back it's kind of like oh my gosh why didn't i do this why didn't i do this earlier why didn't i wish someone would have forced me to do this earlier and i i just kind of had this conversation uh with a group uh in indiana just the other day in terms of using a coach right using an executive coach and it was you, you know where i i was always engaged on the fitness side and you know working out and training and uh, you know, studying, reading, being a lifelong learner, all those types of things. But one thing I had never used was a coach. And it, you know, the coach is the one that can kind of direct you in areas that you don't necessarily want to go, but you probably know that you need to, these accountability partners. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons why all this stuff is so important. But number one, the most important reason, at least in my mind, is, is that if you want to be the best at what you're doing in, in policing, then you have to be centered. Like you've got to be, you know, you got to be firing on all cylinders. You have to be in, in 
absolute control of your emotions, uh, of, of, of really, you know, of your life. And policing is not geared necessarily to line up to, you know, for that just to kind of happen, like, like most people's lives are. And, and not, not to say that other people don't have difficult jobs and, and stress and all those things. But when you're working shift work, when you're dealing with trauma all day long, when you're dealing with other people's negative emotions and negative energy all the time, I mean, that's just like, it just like drapes on you like a, like a cape, you know, that just gets wet and it gets heavier and heavier. And uh, if you don't shed that thing from time to time and, and, and really kind of check in with yourself, then, you know, it's not a matter if things are going to go bad. It's probably just really a matter of when and then how bad might it be. So I, I, you know, I give you a ton of credit for, for what you're doing. And um, you know, the last thing I'll say, and then we can kind of move on is, you know, and it was, I know it was this way with the FBI, but, you know, in policing 20, 30 years ago, it was very difficult to find jobs in these professions. And now we can't find enough people to do it. And the people that are in these professions are leaving and they're leaving, you know, sooner. Uh, uh, they're leaving and they're not leaving happy, right? They're they're coming into these jobs where they want to make a difference. They want to help. And next thing you know, you know, five, 10, you know, 20 years later, if they're not dying early, they're leaving, they're sad, they're angry. And uh, I, I had another episode where I was talking with uh, Dr. Laura King. And I don't know if, you, if you've met Laura or not. Um, I have not. She, so she, you know, she kind of, she gave me this story about her own father who, you know, the job just broke him and, you know, he's still alive. He's still around and she still has a connection with him, but she, you know, she, you know, she just recognized very early on in her career. Like she had an example of what not to become that motivated her to do uh, things not only better for her, but to bring that, you know, she's also a police chief now to be able to bring these things to her agency. And so it's, it's exciting now because I think these things are becoming uh, mainstream. People are accept, accepting them at, at, in ways that they never used to. And, um, you know, sometimes it just takes people uh, like Susanna to go in and bug the shit out of her bosses. <laughs> I'm good at that. I'm good at that. As pretty much any boss I've ever had in the last 25 years, I'm going to say, oh, God, not her again. Can we please just give her this so she just gets out of my office? And I love it. And I, and I love that. You know, I want to add to that, that, I, you know, healthy minds make healthy decisions. And it's to me, it's that simple. It's that simple. It's that simple and that difficult. But, you know, we spend so much time on and this is all good stuff that we need to do, but we spend so much time on physical fitness and tactics and investigative training and um, firearms and all that stuff that we need to do. So I'm not discounting any of that by any way, shape or form, but why are we not equally stressing the mental fitness? Because you mentioned early that, you know, you have the, these instruments like taser, this wonderful instrument like taser, and then you're behind this lethal weapon called a gun and then you have your mouth, which can be equally lethal. You know, you have your body, which can be lethal, right? And then all behind all of that is your mind. And behind every decision you make is your mind. I mean, to, to make it, that sounds kind of stupid, but that's what it is. It, there's a human behind every piece of that. You can have the best technology in the world. It won't matter if you have an unhealthy mind behind it. 
And so why are we not focusing on this? So there's no excuses, Patrick. There just isn't. There's too much data behind it. Now, maybe I would have given a little bit of like, okay, leeway five, 10 years ago when we didn't have the, the data we have now to support not just mindfulness practices in general, but mindfulness practices for law enforcement. For law, We have data to back it up now. We also have data from, from quite a while ago from John Violante in Buffalo saying that, you know, in, in his data, that not you might, not you will, not maybe, but you will be stress injured. So we already know this. The data supports that we're going to be stress injured. So why are we not looking at stress and trauma as part of the experience of being a law enforcement officer, not being a victim to it, but by working with it and understanding that this will happen because the data supports it. And so in order to address that, starting early with mental fitness, using using the technology and all that great stuff is awesome. And that's wonderful. That in tandem with the organic work of meditation, yoga, gratitude practice, uh, finding joy in your life, all those really important um, practices that are all backed by research. Why are we not instituting that into our academies? Starting, starting, you know, that expression cradle to grave kind of thing. I don't really like that expression, but yeah. starting early. And these are practices that, that our folks deserve and that our officers and our agents um, need. They just need to be a better, to be a better law enforcement officer. Yeah, you know, so John Violante, he just updated his book, um, Dying for the Job. He's mm-hmm. he's put uh put more data in there. And um um and I, I was talking to you before the show, but I I was recently did an interview with Mike Malpass, and people can refer to uh his book, but he he's he's written several books. He's a retired um uh, uh, Phoenix police officer, Phoenix SWAT. He was an MMA fighter. And um, he really got into the neuroscience and the, and studying uh, the the information that is out there about how to optimize performance, you know. And so uh, he he had probably one of the best expressions that I've heard. I, I can't believe I've never heard this before, but is is like the mind is a prediction machine, and uh, and if it's if it's working well. And these are my words, um, you know, just kind of paraphrasing a discussion with him. But if if things are going well, your predictions are going to go well. Uh, but if if it's not, then, you, you know, you're going to be in trouble. And, you know, so when we talk about making decisions under stress, making decisions under pressure, uh, making decisions when you're tired, when uh, when you maybe if you have unresolved physical trauma, or emotional trauma, uh you know, if the prediction machine gets, gets a little, uh, you know, gets a kink in it, then, you know, it can, it can create problems. And, you know, then you start making bad predictions or, or false predictions. And that's, uh, that's generally what gets cops in trouble. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're really good at, you know, I, publicly, uh, we're really good at pointing the finger at where we've gone wrong and where we've, where we've done bad. And we like to point those things out and, and ridicule but where we're not necessarily good is pointing at where where what's the source of all the trauma what's the source of all uh of all the problems why are cops dying so young you know why are they leaving the profession in droves why can't we get people to come in uh it's because people on the inside are no longer um 
they're they're no longer uh, uh, telling people or or sharing sharing the joys with the job because they they really are focused on the negative and I, and again I think that's just another aspect of of why what you're doing is so important so we can change this moving forward like where we can build uh you know a culture around you know this practice and these types of practice that can uh create that holistic you know officer approach you know the higher healthy retire healthy absolutely yeah maximize that the holistic is is key patrick and you know some other expressions i hear kind of segueing off what you said is that you know, that cops are broken or the stress and trauma broke them and they need to be fixed. Nobody's broken and needs to be fixed. And we, I, in my opinion, we need to get out of that lane of language because it's killing us doing that. And we need to look at it, look at what John Violante did long ago, that we will be injured in this area. We will, we will have, have uh, stress injuries. So instead of of saying that we're broken and we need to be fixed. And this comes from internally in organizations saying, oh God, that Patrick, oh, that's Susanna. She used to be, they used to be such great law enforcement officers. And wow, what happened to them? They're just, they just, they're not doing what they used to do. And then you start, we sort of get pushed off to the side or that person's struggling and having issues, you know, let's kind of put them off to the side. <laughs> um, we're not broken and we're not fit. We don't need fixing. What we need is support and we need the skill sets to navigate an arena that's very difficult. That's very difficult. And um, we, we, I'm, I'm so glad we've come as far as we have. Um, going back to National Academy, you know, th there's a course now, and you know, it's, it's deep in the curriculum that they meditate and they do these practices now. So we've come a long way in, in just those handful of years, but we're not even close. We're not even close. But we just have to keep this going and maybe start changing the language around stress and trauma. Um, not to, not to say accept it. I mean, I guess acceptance is the right word, but just be yeah. vulnerable enough to accept the fact that this will affect you and you're not going to be broken. It doesn't mean you're weak, all that kind of stuff that drives all of us nuts, right. That's killing us and just say, this is going to happen. So now what, right. Just like, you know, I need a knee replacement. My, my knees are all banged up. So I get a knee replacement. Let's get that. Let's fix it. That kind of thing. Let, let's get let's get that mended. Let's heal it. Right. It's the same thing with the mental training. But if we wait until which is what which I believe is my opinion. Well, is it was what we're doing now. We're waiting till officers, you know, fall off the ledge. And then they're already into the throes of suicidal ideation and PTSD and and tremendous, um, deep, deep, dark depression. And, you know, you name it, you know, you know, all the drill, right? Right. We, we, and we need to do that. We need to address that. No question about it. But if you think about it, there's a long way. And if I put in F from my experience, there's a long distance between a brand new agent that comes in with vim and vigor and really wants to, you know, like you said, they really come in for the right reasons. They want to do the right thing to suicidal ideations. There's that whole gap in there that we could be addressing those minds that are healthy and they're, they're healthy and they're staying healthy and people are doing their, they're, they're being the best law enforcement officer they can. And they still have that uh, positive nature to them that can get eroded by this unprocessed stress and trauma. We're not dealing with the prehabilitative side, like the pre-incident prehabilitative. We're always focusing on the post-incident, post-critical incident, which we need to, again, I do not dissuade that, but isn't there room 
for both in our profession. There has to be, there has to, we have to make room for it and open our minds to the fact that, you know, training gets, is the first thing that gets cut basically in, in, in my organization, in your organization, probably your old organization. It just, it gets, something has to get cut. Right. So when that happens, some of the things that first get cut are things like this, like looking at the resilience, we say it's important, either it is or it isn't. So it, it's important to, as my friend, the human performance coordinator at HRT says, he said, you protect your human capital, just like you protect people on the street, just like you um, protect your family, it's protecting your human capital. And, and I, I do believe that. And you start early, you start early. And I, I think that'll make a a big difference. It's a cultural shift and I, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. <laughs> yeah. I love, so I love the, the way you just said that the prehab versus rehab and uh, you know, you have to be able to do both and that, you know, anyone that's, you know, if, if you've been involved in athletics or, you know, any, you know, now, if you look at, if you look at a professional athlete um, in the way that they prepare themselves for a long career, you know, the Tom Brady's of the world and others, you know, how, how is it that, that a guy like Tom Brady can be successful into his forties? Well, it's because he's got the right type of support and he's doing all these things to prepare himself for the profession. Now, you know, granted it's, you know, maybe it's not the best analogy, but it, it is, you know, it's a great analogy actually. Go ahead. Well, only in terms of, you know, uh, you know, professional athletes going to have, you know, where financially the resources are always going to be there for them and and those organizations are going to put forth that but that i think that's kind of to your point like as organizations we really needed to, to fight for these for these dollars to invest in our people right from day one and i know it's it's tough at, from the academy level because you have a fixed period of time for when you're going to have a recruit and uh, i've i spoke with our executive director from the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy on the podcast, Tim Horty. And, you know, the challenge is that some, you know, if you're not working there, sometimes it's easy to question, well, what are they doing there? Uh, and, but once you spend some time there, I was on our training board uh, for a couple of years. And I got, again, I got that perspective that I didn't have before, like we were talking about earlier, like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So you have officers that are coming from large departments and small departments. And what we're teaching them to is a base level of, of of training that's going to it's going to give them a base level of proficiency we're not training advanced police officers we're training basic police officers and uh if if we want officers to hit the streets at at a more advanced level then guess what we've got to spend more time and money on the front end to get them to that and and i think that's kind of where there's a big uh understanding in america now that we have to invest more up front if if we're going to demand these professional types of of police officers that we expect and are uh, and quite frankly we deserve in our communities then we then we have to invest in them and we got we got to give them these school the these tools so um i, I yes. love that i love the prehab rehab so with so with that in mind right let's if i were to say all right um Susanna, i know nothing about I know nothing about yoga and mindfulness, but I believe you. It sounds like this is something that's great that's going to help my agency. But what what do I do? How do I start? Where do I go? I would suggest now, you know, um, 
Police departments are obviously set up different than the FBI, but let me tell you from my perspective what we have found to be find some success. And you first of all, you start small and you start with a pilot program of people who want to be there. That when I when I hear mandatory mindfulness training, which I have heard in the past, <laughs> that's a recipe for a, 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 like a disaster. Not not good. So um, you start with small groups, and in in our case, we started with our tactical operators because that's what it's built for, you know. And they're very they were very concerned about their their performance as an operator, and then all of a sudden they're now they equate it to their their lives at home. But the reason we a big reason we started there is because they're the informal. Frankly, they're some of the most in the most um, highly respected informal leaders in our organization. And so guess what? Once they kind of take a little bite of the practice and you introduce the right, and I'll talk about this in a moment, but the who delivers it, how it's delivered, um, and why it's delivered going into those points with, with these guys. But let me come back to that in a second. When we get there, we got our SWAT guys. They're this audience that takes this information back and they start talking about it. And then another population hears about it. Uh, other investigators hear about it. Maybe your dispatchers hear about it. Um, and then all of a sudden the information and the conversation starts to percolate and then they want to do it. The, the issues that I've seen where it, do, where it fails is that it's a cookie cutter, one size fits all kind of training where you just bring everybody into a room. We're going to have mandatory mindfulness, mandatory yoga from one to two o'clock and then people show up who don't want to be there. That's like, you know, the, like I said, the recipe for disaster. And then you have somebody that comes in there that teaches that has no idea what it's like to be to work in the law enforcement world. Uh, they can't relate. They don't have stories to relate back to them. They don't have a method. It's not their fault, but they don't have a method to teach um, police officers why this is important for their profession because they don't have the background to do it. Um, they don't have the, well, frankly, the bona fides to go in and talk about why this is important for law enforcement. So my point in all that is saying is that you, you, need, to, you need to decide how you're going to devise this, this training program, teach people why this is important, right? And the other importance is who delivers it. So you could have, say, a bunch of, of really awesome Navy SEALs come in and do this training. You really know what they're doing. And then they're teaching maybe frontline healthcare workers, say, for instance, getting out of the law enforcement arena, health front, frontline healthcare workers, and the healthcare workers are going, huh? Because there's no relationship. So it's really important who delivers it and customizing it for your audience. So I'm not quite sure if I'm fully un, you know, answering your question. Number one, it's difficult, but number two, you always want to start small. And, and I know departments, once things get exciting and they're like, let me try it, let me try it. It becomes too big, too fast, and it fails because it's too vanilla. <laughs> it's too vanilla, and it's it's taught by people who don't relate to their audience. Um, does that make sense? Or oh, no, I think it makes perfect sense. Um, you know, policing has a lot of uh, unique stressors in it that that a lot of other people aren't going to see or or experience, and you know, sometimes it can be kind of off putting when when, when cops make jokes or, you know, they try to make light of things that, you know, that the, the gallows humor comes in, you know, in, in this day and age, you know, you say the wrong thing at the wrong moment and it's all, you know, it's another one of those gotcha moments that people are waiting around for. So, 
Well, it's really uh, important. I mean, you're right. It's really important to know how to speak to a law enforcement audience and when you can sort of relax and let loose and be part of their vernacular and when to pull back. It's really important to do that. Um, there's been many mistakes done in law enforcement where you have the wrong person being in front of a crowd teaching mindfulness. And guess what happens? The, the folks in the audience that get turned off, you know how hard it is to get them back? It's really hard. You don't have too many chances because we're a tough audience. We, we pull the bullshit card up really fast, right? <laughs> we all know this, right? We all know this. So you really have to have reputable people who have a track record for teaching law enforcement. So, and, it, and, it, and a lot of it comes from asking around, uh, literally getting on Google and finding out who's doing this, finding reviews, and then and not just going by what the internet says, but actually doing some research who is this Susanna Hasney? Who is this Chad McGeehee, Rich Gerling, Kevin Kelly? Who are these people and what have they done? And get on the phone, talk to them. I have seen even in my organization, just hiring people just to bring them in to do um, this type of training. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It might be fun for an hour, but to really help shape the culture and shift it, you have to have people who are reputable in their arena of training mindfulness for specifically for law enforcement and or high perform high performers um to me that's been the recipe and, and there's some um data to back that up as well customizing the training really important and starting small very key well i think anytime you're like you said those informal leaders once you once you get them uh, buying in and really committing to something that, that you, you'll see things start to spread a little yeah. bit more organically throughout the organization. Yeah. Um, I call you know. it top down, bottom up, you know, start with it. Yeah. You know, I, I think I told you, I, I, I was invited to do blocks with the special agents in charge just to kind of pique their interest, so to speak. And then the, the bottom up, I don't mean bottom, I mean, just like the regular street agents, right. They're the ones that really are the roots of the whole thing. So if you start top down, so they understand what's happening, then the bottom up, once you get the, the buy-in, I didn't like that word, but the buy-in of this kind of training from your troops, frankly, you know how hard that's going to be to take it away? Really hard because they're going to be like, boss, <laughs> what do you, you know, no, law enforcement get complained about it? Never, right? So, but yeah, once that takes root for them, that's when the cultural shift changes. Frankly, the bosses come and go. And I'm not trying to be di disrespectful, but the bosses do come and go, but you have the ranks from the bottom who are going to be there you know, in, in the bureau's case, you have these agents or, or street officers that that's what they want to do. And they're going to be there for 20, 25 plus years. And they're the ones that are going to be just um, priceless in getting this taken root. I just spoke to a brand new agent yesterday, just graduated from the academy, I don't know, like a month or two ago, something like that. He had sat through a training course that I, um, I, I have done and for the new agent training training academy and he sat through a really short course it was like an hour or so and he was intrigued by it. he was a former army guy and he he had the wherewithal to like track us down right and say hey you know i, I don't want to stay with cities in but i'm in i'm in this particular office and do you have any resources up here and so i mean i found some resources for him up there to to explore this whole mindfulness arena that you know i could have a big huge smile on my face talking to him because that is the future this is the young guy right? Yep. Coming in going, I want to know more about this, right? Because I don't want what happened to so-and-so who retired five years ago 
I don't want to be like that guy who left, who left um, unhealthy, unhappy, you know, broken up marriages, relationship issues. I don't want to be that guy, right? I don't want to be that guy. He already has the where, already had the wherewithal to go. There's got to be something that I can do for me. And in terms of like the cost is, you know, mindfulness doesn't cost anything. Once you get the training in and once you get it infused, if you really think about it, you don't need a whole lot of fancy stuff, you know, to do this, yep. but you need to invest in the right trainers and the goal of it. And, and you know, my, my friend, a human performance coordinator at HRT, he and I talk about this all the time, that one of the highlights of teaching yoga there for almost for a little over five years now is that. A bunch of the guys are now going off and finding private studios to go to. They're deployed somewhere and then guess what they do in their off times? They go find a yoga class. They do, they practice yoga online. That was, um, honestly, that was my dream. I don't need you to come to me all the time. That's, it's not about me. This is about you. And so if that, if you are doing that, that means it's infused into the daily rhythms of your life now. And that's where these young guys, like who I spoke to yesterday, that's the future of this is really getting those internal champions who are going to be there for a while to sort to rise up and keep the message going. Cause I don't plan on being like a 70 year old yoga instructor for tactile operators. And it's not that far away, frankly. So <laughs> that, that, that's not my dream. My dream is to help shape the culture for it, to give it a lane of respect and importance. So uh, while we're chatting here, I'm going to grab a yeah. book. And um, there's, I've got a couple of them here and just using myself as kind of like, again, an, an N of one. And that's kind of where a lot of my, uh, my crazy paths go. I am a bit of a, I'm a bit of a, a geek when it comes to technology and data. And I like to have measurables and, you know, that one of the things that I found, particularly when it comes to yoga is that, or I'm sorry, mindfulness is that, um, I, um, I use a muse headset, but, um, I don't always use it. And I, I find that sometimes it's better to, to not use it every single time, because then you, you know, you kind of, you start getting focused on the data and not necessarily on the process and the process is, I think is where kind of where the magic is. And uh, speaking of, you know, speaking of Mark divine, I was listening to uh, his podcast and uh, uh, Amisha Ja was on there and it was, and, and so I, I read her book and, and, and then I went back and I started to use my muse headset again. And I found like, just, just, just experimenting, just trying. And we're talking 10 to 15 minute sessions. I, you know, I think the longest session I've ever done is 30 minutes. Um, but, and, and I'll just, use, again, as an end of one, um, I, I would try when I was working, I would try to come home for lunch uh, as much as I could. I don't live very far from my office, so I could come home. And then during COVID, uh, there were times where, yeah, of course, when I was quarantined <laughs> several times, I found that if if I just did like a 10 to 15 minute session right before I went back to the office, like before I leave the house, just sit down. Yeah, I would just eat a sandwich or something real quick and eat a salad, sit down for 10, 15 minutes and go. I found that I can actually get into a state of calm. The more I did it, the the quicker I could get into a state of calm. And I had, number one, I could feel it. But two, then I also started to have some measurables 
And then I'm also, so I like to use the the technology, but I know that I, I benefit when I don't use it as well, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I'm just, you know, I, and I bring this up because I'm just thinking for someone that might be listening to this, like, Hey, my organization is not going to provide a yoga instructor. They're not going to provide a mindfulness coach. So therefore I'm not, if they're not going to give it to me, then I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Um you know, which I don't think is the right approach either, because a lot of these things, you know, it really just kind of takes some individual, you know, responsibility and accountability to kind of seek them out on your own too, because, because it's your life, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you got to take control of, of, of your life and your outcomes. And, you know, you can't, you can't be the victim in your own play. And that's what I like about what you were mentioning earlier, right? Is like, we're yeah. not broken. We don't need to be fixed. Uh, we just need to be fine tuned and tuned up from time to time. Yeah, yeah, and I and and going back to what you said, if your department's not going to offer that, which I totally agree, that um, hopefully that changes when leadership shifts because that's all, again, I'll go back to the leadership issue. It's so important for the these um, practices to be um, infused into the culture of your department. But when I look at that, often it's just informal conversations like in the squad room, you know, with your partner, just talking about, Hey, you know, have you tried this yoga class down the street? Or, you know, I, am using this app. It's on um, insight timer or calm or headspace or, or whatever one you, you, you choose. And these, those conversations are really helpful because that kind of word spreads and there's always going to be the officers that think that's kind of a weirdo thing. And, and so be it. So we're not going to get to everybody, you know, that, that will happen. But um, eventually the hope is, is that some, some brave soul brings that up to leadership and says, hey, boss, you know, I, I know this yoga instructor from my studio, he or she is willing to come in and just have a couple classes with us and, and um, or like a mindfulness instructor. There's, there's more than you think. There's more mindfulness and yoga instructors out there that are very law enforcement friendly and want to give back and want to support our community. And there's, there's organizations out there that will do it. There's uh, veterans organizations that will do it. And they'll also help out um, law enforcement organizations with um, issues like that of finding the right instructors to come in. But like you said, it's very, it it is individual too, but it is the onus of the organization um, to take, to take the leadership in this. And so to answer your question, it doesn't really answer it that well. But I think we're in a place where, dare I say it, that is just not an option. That is just not an option. I mean, if we're still back there going, we're, we're not even going to try this because we can't spend a hundred bucks to bring in a yoga instructor to work with our guys for one hour or half an hour, whatever it is. I don't even know what to tell you because we're so beyond that in terms of the need that, um, it's just too important to um, sort of push it off to the side and go, we're just not going to do that. We can't afford it. You can't afford not to do it. So I, I'm just a real hardliner about that. Well, I think too, and I, we hear a lot about, um, you know, training for emotional intelligence, training for, you know, how do you, how do you improve your EQ, your emotional quotient? And this, this is probably, um, if not the best way, one of the best ways to improve an individual's emotional intelligence. And we, 
we hear about this all the time. There's there's training that 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 is appearing that hey look you know maybe, maybe we need to screen for these kind of traits. Um, the you know officers agents that have a high level, higher level of emotional intelligence are are performing better on the job. They're making better decisions. Uh, they're more compassionate. They show more appropriate empathy. Um, so it, if if we're if we're looking for those things, then here's here's a very uh, direct and uh, approach to how to improve it. If, if, yeah, you know, it's directly related. Emotional intelligence is the underlying foundation of resilience. It, it really is. I mean, the self-awareness piece, the self-management piece, the, right, the emotional regulation piece, all that sounds really familiar for mindfulness training. That's, that's the foundational part of mindfulness is knowing yourself, knowing how you affect others, emotional reactivity, all that good stuff that, you know, that every officer um, should you know, have the, the um, respect to get that training and our, our profession should have enough respect for our own officers to have that training for them. Um, it's, it's really a matter in some cases, life or death, because what officers are doing to themselves. And the other side of it is how officers relate to the community. If, if, you know, we have a little bit of a PR problem. And so addressing an officer's emotional intelligence and addressing their, their um, ability to make, decisions, healthy decisions under stress, pressure, and trauma is imperative for our profession. I love law enforcement. I love it. And at the same time, I get so frustrated with um, some of the conversations around blaming media or blaming politicians or whatever. I mean, can we please get past that and focus on what we need to do to change and what we need to do when I mean by change to change us for the better and, and 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 you know I know a little bit biased in this direction but why don't we start by training our officers minds and putting a real emphasis on that so um, we can just better navigate the the difficulties of being a law enforcement officer we just take ownership of it take ownership of it because we can't control what other people are saying about us but we can control is um, how we treat ourselves because that will translate out into the public. All right. So one last, let's, then we'll switch gears. Um, I know we've been going for a while already. I knew yeah. this was going to happen. So <laughs> we're nerding out. We're nerding out, Patrick. So <laughs> you, so let, all right. So for an officer that, um, again, I'll go back to this. My, my organization isn't going to provide something like this. What would be your recommendations for um, someone that's curious about it? And they're they're wanting to get started. What uh, what would you say that they steps that they take and to get started on their own? Couple things is um, books, read, read, read. Podcasts like yours. Um, everybody, almost everybody's into listening to podcasts. Videos. Start doing your own research. There's a lot of good stuff in there. You can Google uh, mindfulness and law enforcement and start. You see uh, just a myriad of things. And there and, and start start with those basic simple things and don't necessarily believe everything you read and what you see. Just start to take it all in and you will gravitate towards um, the resources that work for you. So that's the number one thing is start reading. Start reading. Um, grab a grab a buddy, go to a yoga studio, 
test out a couple different instructors. They, they, they're not all going to be your cup of tea. So find the one that may work for you. Go to a yoga studio. Talk to the yoga, yoga teachers in that studio. There are tremendous resources in this area of training, tremendous resources. Many of them, certainly in my area, I live in Fredericksburg, Virginia, certainly at, at my studio. I teach at a local studio as well called Dragonfly Yoga Studio. Shout out to them. Awesome. Um, there's, there's several of those instructors who are former military. There's three of us who are former law enforcement. There's resources out there um, to be had. Apps, you know, um, I'm not as much of an app person. I, I do use Insight Timer once in a while, but experiment with apps and see what works for you. There's a great one at the University of Wisconsin-Madison too. Experiment with some of those apps. Self-educating, um, right? Deep reflection, for yourself, you know, what is that? Uh, my colleague Chad McGee, he always said that experience plus reflection equals learning. Just having the experience of being a law enforcement officer, you don't necessarily learn from that. You reflect on your experiences in order to learn. So um, just start being curious that, that, you know, that, that expression of being curious about your life and not judging what you feel. It's all part of the mindfulness realm. Being curious about being a better person all of us can improve, you know, and we go through fits and starts where we're in the deep bowels of um, negativity. And all of a sudden we're in the high highs of, of an amazing life. And we have to be aware that that's normal and that happens and stay curious to it and um, just be lifelong learners in this. And I know I get really passionate about it and I, and I keep going on and on about it, but self-reflection and self-study is the foundational piece to answer the question um, why do I feel like this? And I don't want to feel like this anymore. So what can I do about it? And if your department's not doing about it, unfortunately, that's just, if that's what it is right now, hopefully that's going to change soon. Do your own, do your own work and start, start um, disregarding what other people say and just move into it, you know, and you, and, be in, and become an internal champion for your organization. And, and that's, I, I, that's going to be really helpful for the shift in culture. So if I've never done yoga before and yeah. I, I just kind of looked in, and I tell people this, like, if you're going to start like, you know, I use the example of CrossFit all the time. I was just talking about this the other day, but um, if you've never done CrossFit and you're thinking about doing it, a, a, a lot of times people used to come or they would tell us, uh, oh, well, yeah, I think I'm going to do CrossFit, I'm, but I want to go, I'm going to lose weight first. I want to go get in shape and then I'm going to come do CrossFit. And it's like, no, no, that's not, it's not the way it works. Like come in here and let us coach you, let us help you. And I, and the example that I gave was that it, you know, a lot of times you can do a lot of things on your own. Uh, but if you've got a good coach or someone that's available to you, then it's better to do that up front, find people that can teach you. And then, and then, uh, and then maybe try to do it on your own afterwards. I think it's, it, it accelerates the learning curve, but either way, you just, you, you are going to have to do what's comfortable to you. So, so, so should someone like, all right, I've never done yoga. Should I do it once a week? Should I plan on three times a week? Does it really matter? Or is it just, just no. important to just get started? No, just get started because what, what we do, Patrick, is we put a whole lot of pressure on ourselves to, you know, how do I do this right? So how many times should I do this? How long should I meditate? The practice that works is the practice that you do, period. So if yoga only works for you because of your schedule and other things in our life, once a week, 
once a month, it doesn't matter. Just do it. Just start it because just it's a habit, right? And so it takes a while to build a habit, but we have to go and find what works for us and find the practices that work for us. There's no right or wrong way of doing this. We put pressure on ourselves. Like, um, like you just said, you know, maybe I should lose weight before I work out. Right. Which is complete. Like what, you know, <laughs> or I just, I want to, I'm not very flexible. So I need to get more flexible. I've heard this from somebody. I need to get more flexible before I go to yoga, you know, literally stuff like that. When you really right. look at that, if you really would listen to yourself, you, you go, why did I say that? That doesn't even make any sense, you know? So basically just taking yourself there, that is the first step, like jumping off the deep end and go take a friend, go try it um, and see what happens. There's no right or wrong because you're already on the path to the mindfulness practice that's going to work for you, but you won't know it um, if you don't try it. You don't know until you try. Always, always just go and try. You're going to you're you're going to feel stupid sometimes and you're going to say, am I doing this right? There is no right or wrong. Um, so that that would be my advice. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I can tell you. No, no. That, yeah, that's that's perfect. And I think that's also if you if you go one place and you didn't enjoy it, or you didn't like it, then try another one yeah. and then do yeah. that again. Uh, yeah. There's you know, he, a, a, do it until you find the one that where you do feel comfortable or or that you've you know, you think you found something that's going to work best with your schedule and something that you can commit to. Yeah. That find something that works for you. And and again, ask around. And if there's a fellow officer that's going to a yoga class, maybe you hook up with him or her and go to the class, you know, and go try it with him or her. Cause sometimes, you know, that, you know, the safety and numbers kind of thing, when you feel kind of awkward, just makes you feel better. And there's, there's meditation, um, training and meditation centers many of them are affiliated with universities check out like a big university nearby or, and see what's going on there just that's the beauty of the internet now right just start doing some research on there and then if you find that a local university um is affiliated with a meditation center or offers training in that go for it just go for it give them a call and, and, and even if they don't offer training for you they have the the resources that they can tell you hey go check this out in this city. You know, this is who we talk to. This is who we use. Um, just, just try it that way. It, it does take some time, but just like a fitness program, you got a physical fitness program, you find what works for you. Right. And... Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the, so the other thing when you, uh, when it comes to mindfulness and, and maybe practicing or starting a practice like that, um, the, if you just do, if you just pick up your phone and do a quick search on, uh, mindfulness apps, go to the app store and, and look at meditation or mindfulness. And you're going to see about a thousand apps in there. Um, and yeah, there, there's probably a benefit to any one of them. I think there's, there's, there's good ones out there. I think the first one that I use was calm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, 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 that one I think is probably one of the more prolific ones you see, you know, professional athletes and others on, on ads for it. But um, there's sessions on there, like the, the muse one that I use, there's beginner, there, there's beginner practices. You literally just put in a pair of headphones and they'll walk you through them and, and you can learn a ton. I I've just, you know, some of them are, there are sessions that are five to six minutes at a time. You can do longer ones, but, uh, there, there's a lot of simple ways to do it. Um, yeah, so start short, start short. If you, if you um, have a meditation teacher or even a yoga teacher that starts you off with a 15 or 20 minute meditation, that's going to be 
extremely difficult. You know, it's just like never running before. And then somebody takes you out for a 15 minute run. It's very unpleasant. So <laughs> it's just starting, starting in small bursts, like two to three minutes at a time and just seeing what that feels like, you know, just sit with your breath and, and look up those short meditations. Like you said on apps, if you want a little bit more guidance for it. Um, and, a, and, a, and a big, as you know, the big part of the practice is noticing that when judgment emerges, saying, I can't do this, or my mind's wandering. And, you know, I'm thinking about my grocery list or whatever it is. And that's um, totally normal. And knowing that that's okay. And part of the practice, it's like reps in the weight room, keep coming back to whatever that anchor is, or whatever the guided, whatever the guide is telling you, always coming back. You're, there's no way, there is absolutely no way you can do meditation wrong. I mean, there's no way. There's no way. So, yeah. and I, I can, I'm, I'm proof of that. Because <laughs> if, yeah, there's, if there was a way to do it wrong, I'd be doing it wrong, uh, <laughs> or I'd have been doing it wrong for a long time before I figured out how to do it right. Uh, how to do it right, and, you know. And I, I want to add one more thing because it segues off of what we're talking about of starting out a practice is that there's so much marketing going on with mindfulness now, and there's a whole. I listened to a podcast about Mick mindfulness. I don't know if you ever heard that. I think there's a whole book on that, but Mick mindfulness and just as, it's a huge, you know, multi-million dollar business, right? And so um, the thing about what's getting misinterpreted about mindfulness, that it's, you know, this gentle, calming practice. And much of the time, it's not. Mindfulness, when you really sit with your body and sit with happening in your body, it's work. I mean, it's it's work. Now, the the affective outcome of it can absolutely be relaxation and calm, but the practice of mindfulness, sometimes when you sit there and you meditate, it's, it's, it's essentially the last thing sometimes you want to do because you're so full of stress and trauma and pressure. You have, you have a, you have a big briefing to do in an hour. And the last thing you want to do is sit there and be still and breathe. And it's, it can be very frustrating. Um, it, sometimes it can be boring, you know, sometimes you have high expectations, like you meditate for five minutes and, ah, that didn't work. You know, one of those, well, just like reps in the weight room, if you want to be a better runner, you got to run, you know, if you want to be better, a better shot with firearms, you got to go shoot. You know, it's the same thing. It's a practice. It's not a, I don't even like to use the word tool that much. It's not a tool where you take a hammer and you hit the nail and you're done. It's not, and it works. Oh God, everything sticks together and it works. That's not what it is. It's a skill. It's a skill, just like shooting, just like running, just like, you know, it's, it's an activity that has to be honed and practiced in order for it to be effective. And the same thing, like working out when you feel like, ah, it's not working. I'm not getting stronger, but, but if you keep at it and it becomes a habit in your brain, you keep at it all of a sudden you start noticing the results. So with meditation, if you think about it, it takes time. It, it takes years. And we know it's going to take years. And the more you do it, the faster it's going to, the, the faster that you're going to notice the results. But eventually, if you keep at it and it becomes habituated in your brain to have some kind of practice, even if it's a few minutes a day, I, I, I will wager that you'll, you'll start to notice that you're sleeping better. Maybe you're making better eating choices. Maybe you notice when you're drinking too much, you know, stuff like that. You notice when you're being short with your partner, when you're kind of, you know, snapping at them because you're, you're full of anger or whatever is going on with you. You're starting, you start to notice that all of a sudden you'll start to notice that. And this comes from, you know, direct conversations I've had with some of the guys that I work with that they've noticed over the years that they relate to their kids better. They're, they're less apt to, you know, like, gas off on their kids because they're, they're stressed <laughs> out about something else, you know, 
Um, they're, you know, they fall asleep better. They stay asleep longer, you know, um, things like that. But, but it, again, it takes time. Like, just like you don't lose weight overnight. And if you do, guess what? 99% of the time it comes back. Right. So the same thing with this, you keep working at it, you know, keep working at it, see what happens. It's not a, it's not, there's no, there's no shortcuts. Unfortunately, if there were shortcuts, I would have found it, but there isn't. No excuses, no shortcuts. Correct. Like Correct. That, that'd be a, that, that's a good t-shirt right there. <laughs> it's probably been done. I'm guessing, but well, I know no excuses. I had that printed on the wall uh, in our CrossFit gym, and uh, I know that no shortcuts is that's that's pretty much anything in life. Um, Absolutely, anything yeah, so, worth doing. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure, right? And and just like you said, um, sometimes we don't get into bad places overnight. Uh, so sometimes we're not going to get out of them overnight, and bad places might not be a might not be a good thing to or a good yeah. way to express it, but. Um, all it right. So, yeah, go ahead. So we've been going for a while. I think we, so now we've, we've given people a little bit of uh, uh, some takeaways on how to get started, where I can do this, why it might be important, uh, some things to consider, um, anything else that you, that you think we need to bring up before we, uh, before we wrap it up. Um, I want to say thank you to you for doing this and for getting the word out in all your podcasts, because this whole area of performance, mind, body, spirit, um, is a place that, you know, in my love of law enforcement, it's a place that we are, we finally need to go to, you know? And, uh, so I appreciate people like yourself who are just doing some great work and are, are giving back to our community. So I want to thank you for that. Well, I appreciate it. And I, I thank you for sharing your your knowledge and your expert, expertise and uh, most importantly, your story. Uh, I think it that will resonate with a lot of people. The uh, uh, the most uh, the most important time to get started on this might have been uh, yesterday. Right. Uh, the next <laughs> the next most important time might be today. So uh, I love either, that. either yeah. way, right? just just get started. Uh, don't wait. Don't wait for anyone else's approval. Uh, don't ask for anyone else's approval. Uh, you don't need it um, and, and do it for yourself. And these things can be as as uh, simple as uh, sitting in a, in a tree stand without your without your phone for an hour. Uh, sitting in a boat fishing, right? There's a reason why people seek these things out. Um, and I, and a lot of times you don't necessarily even realize it until, uh, in, until you have those moments where, where you're not looking at your phone, you're not, yeah. you know, being interrupted. No one's knocking at your door type of things, but you actually have these, these times to decompress and, and just process information. So. And, and notice, and with that, notice what's good every single day, even if, things are looking pretty bleak and dark, which in law enforcement career, you're, you're going to have many, many days like that. Find one thing that was good. Even if it was the first cup of coffee you drank in the morning, tasted fabulous, then maybe that's it. But it's one thing. It's one thing. Yeah. Uh, gratitude journaling. That's yeah. uh, we could, we could probably have a whole nother show on that. Just, just one thing right there, but all right. Well, um, let's wrap it up. I really appreciate you uh, spending your valuable time with us today. We've got some really cool takeaways here. Uh, before we close it out, if somebody wants to get in touch with you uh, to learn more, how, how might they reach out to you? 
I uh, check out my email, which is Suzanne. I'll spell it for you too. Is that, is that okay? I'm just going to spell it out. It's Susanna Hasne, um, S-U-Z-A-N-N-A, uh, H-A-S-N-A-Y, one word, at policespirit.com. And that's the name of my company, Police Spirit. So do you have a website, Police Spirit? I do. It's policespirit.com. Yeah, okay. it's all one word. If you type in Police Spirit separately, it'll be this, the police song, um, we are spirits in the material world, whatever that is, you know, it'll, you'll oh, yeah. see, like sting, right? Yeah. You, so nice. if, you, if you put police spirit together, it'll be my company. You separate it, it'll be, you'll see sting, which is not a bad thing, but I'm just saying that's what will come out. <laughs> I would sing that for you, but I don't think we want to close out a, a podcast episode with me singing. It's never no, pretty. It might cause some trauma, right? <laughs> so yeah. I, already had a, I already had a friend told me I, I ruined Bon Jovi for him. Um, so I, I don't want to ruin the police for anyone else. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Susanna. And, uh, until the next time I'm 1042.